Mark chapter 3, we've come as far as verse 7, where it says, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan. And those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So we've seen Jesus begin to defy the religious leaders, the interpretation of the Sabbath day regulations on work, for example. He says their condemnation of the disciples plucking grain is unjust. In Matthew 12, 7, he says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He's stating that the disciples' activity does not rise to the level of work restricted on the Sabbath, and in fact, the religious leaders were bringing people into bondage with their teachings. Jesus says their teaching about the Sabbath is wrong. It is false teaching. It comes back to my least favorite scripture, James 3.1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We do not want to be guilty of laying upon men requirements that are not directly from God. The Pharisees were guilty, not the disciples in this situation. So Jesus then healed the man with a withered arm on the Sabbath in the synagogue, rebuking their elevation of religious rules, not righteousness, but rules above the welfare of man. They preferred their rules over compassion for those who suffered. Jesus is unconcerned about the plot to destroy him. That's why he's withdrawn to the sea. It says at the end of the previous passage that the Pharisees took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Uh, he's unconcerned about that, but he takes precautions to not accelerate coming events. You know, if, if I knew that they were plotting to destroy me, I'd probably be getting out of town because I would be afraid. Jesus is not afraid. Jesus knows what's going on with these guys. He also knows what's going on with you. And his time has not yet come. He goes back to the seaside with his disciples. And a great multitude is following him from all over the region, from Galilee, from Judea, down around Jerusalem, from Idumea, which is Edom, to the southeast of the Jordan. Also, the regions of Lebanon, people from Tyre and Sidon, it says they followed him because they heard how many things he was doing. They were focused on his actions, not necessarily on his words. Somebody said it's wonderful for people to be attracted to Jesus, but if their focus is on what he can do for them instead of who he is, they will not follow him for long. You know, Jesus tended to let people down who were looking to him only for what he could do for them. They had to come to a faith in who he is beyond that. So Jesus makes provision to protect himself from the adoring crowd. He has a boat standing nearby. Uh, we know from our own cults of celebrity 
that adoring crowds can present a danger. And these are cults of celebrity. For many, that's what this was with Jesus. It wasn't true recognition, submission, or worship. It's what can you do for me, Jesus. Jesus does a lot for us, but not on our terms. Entertainers like Elvis, the Beatles, and others could be crushed or injured by crowds of people because they love them so much. Most celebrities live lives of limitations or seclusion. And they may, you may read about them disguising themselves to go out and do just common activities of life. Or they may hire others to do these things for them. Fame often pays well financially, but puts limitations upon a person's freedom. And that might be why celebrities are so willing to limit everybody else's freedom, because their freedom is already limited by their popularity. I know those people are often recommending uh, stricter things for others. But we know that all in these crowds are not committed to Jesus as Messiah or Lord. Among them are those who are seeking more evidence against him to destroy him. There's still some of those are among this crowd. Many are caught up in the excitement of mighty works and great words, but will abandon or turn on him when what he does or says does not please them. It's the same today. When trouble comes from following Jesus, many turn away or become disillusioned. Some remake Jesus into someone who supports their cause rather than following who he is as revealed in Scripture. Jesus healed many, and those who desired healing were among those who might do injury to Jesus in their eagerness to touch him. Now, Jesus is in no real danger since his time has not yet come, but he takes practical rather than miraculous precautions. He won't invoke the force field or the invisible fence. He uses a boat. Keeps it standing by. We know at one point in Luke 5, he taught from a boat, which was pushed out a little ways from the shore. Jesus also cast out more unclean spirits from those who were demonized. Our text does not say so specifically, but Jesus never failed in commanding spiritual beings. And they were subject and are subject to his commands. They knew he was the prophesied son of God who had come into the world. And they feared his judgment. As before, he did not allow them to speak. He did not accept the commendation of demons. He only accepted the commendation of the Father. Henry Morris says these unclean spirits recognized Christ even though his own friends thought he was mentally ill. We'll see that at the end of our passage today. Nevertheless, he did not want the spirits to identify him openly. The Lord Jesus does not need or desire any affirmation of his enemies, but only the witness of his own disciples. There's always a great temptation for Christians to seek acclaim or testimony from ungodly people of influence, but Christ himself would have none of it. How many Christian ministers have thought, if I could just get my picture taken with the president. If we move on to Mark 3, 13 through 19, it says, He went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name 
Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Jesus appoints 12 men to become apostles, or the word means sent out ones. Luke tells us in chapter 6 of his gospel that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, and he continued in prayer all night before choosing these 12 men. This is a vital decision. These men will carry on the mission of Jesus, and its success or failure will be dependent upon them and their obedience to the Holy Spirit. This was not an impulsive decision. Okay, you and you and you. Jesus didn't ask for volunteers. Anybody want to be an apostle? He didn't. Nobody filled out an application. You know, apostles' application. What's your background? Figure this out. He chose men, these men, for a specific purpose, that they might be witnesses of his life, death, and resurrection. And he prayed all night so that he would know who the Father wanted him to choose. We're told that he called to himself those whom he himself wanted. First, he called them because he wanted them. If you're called to follow Jesus, it's because he wants you. I think it was Macintosh yesterday that said, God doesn't need us, but he does want us. Many feel that Jesus or God does not want them. This is a favorite lie of the devil. But he wants men and women to come to him. He presents the offer again and again. You know, Matthew 11, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. John 7, are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John 3, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I think he calls everyone because he wants everyone to be saved, as we see in 2 Peter 3, 9. But all who are called do not come. They do not believe the offer, or they do not want it, or they don't understand it. Some think that they must be better than they are. But he forgives sin, and he sends the Holy Spirit. He's the one who does the work of change, promising to conform us to the image of his Son and transform us into his likeness. He called these men because he wanted them. And if you hear his call, you will if you listen, you will feel drawn to him. When you hear his call, it's because he wants you. After they came to him, he appointed them first that they might be with him. He wanted them so that they might be with him. There were only so many that could be close to Jesus when he was limited to the body. Only so many could be in the inner circle. Now, all that he calls are called to be near him. His inner circle is as broad as the number of those who have responded to his call. All who respond to his call are appointed to be with him in fellowship, koinonia, close relationship. Again, this is accomplished by his Holy Spirit sent into the heart of those who believe. Being with him is a time of discipleship and training for the service he has for each one to enter into. And he appointed these twelve to be with him that he might send them to preach. He still sends those who are with him. We will see that these twelve are unique ones, that is, apostles. But he still sends those whom he calls to be with him to preach. 
that is to herald or proclaim his, or publish his gospel, to tell people the good news. So he caused these to be with him, to be sent, and he granted them to have power or authority to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. He shared his authority with these men. This particular power was unique to these men in the situation, but power is also promised to all those who believe in him. John 1.12 To those who believe in him, he gave them the power of the authority to become the children of God. In Acts 1.8 Power shall come upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. So these men are appointed as apostles, no one could appoint themselves an apostle in the sense of these 12 men. When Jesus calls someone, he has a specific purpose or plan in mind for that one. He prepares and equips them for that purpose. All do not have the same purpose. We all have certain general things in common as believers in the Lord, but he has individual things for each one of us. He chooses the purpose or the role. A person does not choose the role for themselves. They are to seek the Lord for his will and his purpose for them. These 12 would be the human foundation of the church, the cornerstone being Jesus himself. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 19 he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now you only lay a foundation once. Unless you get bad concrete, then you might have to tear it up and start over. But Jesus doesn't do bad concrete. So he only laid the foundation once. There's only one foundation for the church, and it's the apostles and prophets. And it's already been laid. It won't be relayed. He says, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now Peter talks about us being living stones that are built together in this house for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 12, Paul's been writing to them about uh, he and Apollos being nothing, basically. He said, you know, one plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. And then he says in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the basic foundation and the apostles and prophets. He goes on to say, if anyone builds on this foundation, they need to take care how they build, because the work is going to be tested. In Revelation 21:14, then it says, "But now, now the wall of the city had twelve foundations. This is the New Jerusalem, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So, twelve foundation stones with the names of the apostles on them. So there were there were only there are only twelve positions available, and they're taken. There is no indication. In fact, there's a contraindication that there will be other apostles appointed." in the same capacity as these 12. There were others who were called apostles in the Bible, but only 12 were appointed by Jesus for this particular purpose. 
Again, apostles just means one who is sent out. The word apostle means one who is sent by another, so there were and still may be lesser apostles than those 12. Uh, I think the people we refer to as missionaries are apostles that are sent. Don't believe or follow anyone who makes the claim of being an apostle in the same capacity or office as these 12. There are modern-day people claiming to be apostles in this same sense. The restoration of the apostles. These are false apostles. They're self-deluded, at least as to this issue and most certainly in other ways. Second Corinthians chapter 11, 12 through 15, Paul's writing about some of these guys and he says, What I do I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. We have to be aware. We have to be discerning because everything that looks like light is not light. It has to be tested according to what God has said. He says, therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So these guys were teaching a heretical gospel that could not be saved, a gospel of works. And Paul says they're false apostles. Well, these genuine 12 men were sent out as apostles by Jesus during his earthly ministry as part of their training. He gave them power to heal sicknesses, cast out demons. If we do anything in the way of healing or deliverance, it will be God's power and not our own. He gives gifts according to his own purposes. I think it's amazing how many ministers, the word means servants, take credit for things which only their master can do. To God be the glory for the things he has done. Mark then gives us a list of the names of the men chosen by Jesus to be with him and that he might send them out to preach. It was a great honor to be chosen for this task. I don't think they have a clue as to what this will entail in their future. You know, there was a time when James and John, the sons of Zebedee, asked that they might sit on his right hand and his left in the kingdom. Uh, Matthew clues us in. He says it, it was really their mother who started things. You know, he's a good, she's a good Jewish mama. And she wanted her sons to be doctors. But hey, if they want to hang out with this vagabond preacher, at least they should be at the top. Just in case it does come to something. You know, actually, we see that she was a believer as well. Oh, we want some number two and three spots. That'll be fine. <laughs> Jesus says it's not a request he can grant, but the Father will decide. But I wonder what their reaction would have been if Jesus had then said, Look, fellows, your names are going to be written on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. Wouldn't this have blown their minds? But we would probably be amazed if the Lord told us the things he's prepared for us beforehand. Now, nowadays we say for we say for a donation of five hundred denarii, you can have your name engraved on a brick in the wall. These are our modern shenanigans, you know. That's our fundraising methods. Well, this list of twelve men is given four times: three in the Synoptic Gospels and once in Acts. Actually, the one in Acts is the one guy's replaced. 
in all the lists, Peter is named first, followed by three others. So you have a set of two pairs. Philip is always listed fifth. And again, there are two pairs in that set. And then comes James, the son of Alphaeus, always the ninth in these lists. Again, two pairs following. And the last name on the list is always Judas, Judas Iscariot. These were not high-profile apostles. These were common men. Some were tradesmen. Some were sinners. We know all were sinners, but some were notoriously sinners. Men of little faith at many times. I recalled a, a talk that uh, David Hawking gave some years ago as when he was associated with Calvary Chapel under Chuck Smith, and he was teaching at the Bible College. And he talked about a time when uh, he and Chuck and some others were invited to go to Salt Lake City and meet with the heads of the Mormon church. You know, they were interested in what was going on with Calvary Chapel and probably trying to you know, get them in the group or something. But, you know, I, don't, I don't know what the whole thing was about, but at one point uh, David was talking about this and he said, well, you know, when we got there, we were talking for a while, and then they started talking about their young men. You know, you see them out on bicycles a lot of times, the white shirts, and these are elders, but they're, you know, 18 yeah. to 20 years old or yeah. something, most of them. And so they start talking about what fine young men they were, that you know, these elders, you know, and how clean they lived, and they were all this and that, and they're just morally great and building them up and all. And they might be all, all those things in there lifestyle, you know, but then uh, they turned to Chuck and they said, uh, where do your young men come from? <laughs> and Chuck began to laugh, and he said, you don't want to know where our young men come from. <laughs> They're all hippies and drug users, and you know, so... <laughs> so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29, uh, Paul writes and says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that's these twelve guys, <laughs> and us, to put to shame the wise. And God's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. <coughs> that no flesh should glory in his presence. Just above that, in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, he says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's all about him. But we know very little personally about most of the men named here. Some we know fairly well. They're always at the forefront or figure prominently in some events. We know Peter, James, and John are in the inner, inner circle. Jesus included them in some situations apart from the other apostles. He took them with him into the inner chamber when he raised the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, from the dead. We'll get to that in Mark 5. They were the only ones with Jesus on the mountain when he was transfigured before them, and Moses and Elijah appeared in Mark 9. 
And he took these three apart also in the garden of Gethsemane when he was distressed about his coming sacrifice upon the cross. And even they could not stay awake to pray. That's Mark 13. We know Thomas fairly well, of course. We know Matthew and his call. Judas we know quite well. But some, all we know of them is their name listed here. That they were chosen and that we do know they carried out their master's will during his earthly ministry and after his ascension. We know more about some of the deacons chosen by the church in Acts 6 than we do about some of these men. We will learn much more about them in the future in the kingdom and in eternity with the Lord. But church tradition has something to tell us about most of them. Now, a lot of this, it's not as authoritative, it's not authoritative as scripture is, so a lot of it's less reliable, you know, but I think we can learn some things that are uh, fairly well supported. We uh, know from tradition the commonly known destinies of these men. They passed down through the churches, although the accounts are not always consistent. Simon Peter, we'll just take them in the order that they're listed here in in Mark. Simon Peter we know pretty well. He's brash and outspoken. (laughs) He often says something without thinking about it first. He often spoke at times because he was uncomfortable or afraid. It was the thing to do. Some people verbalize when they're uncomfortable. Others become deathly quiet. Someone described Peter with the phrase, ready, fire, aim. (laughs) It is said that Peter had to take his foot out of his mouth to make room for his other foot. But Peter was very honest. Peter was bold. What you saw was what you got with Peter. Peter was the only man to walk on water for some steps. He was the first to confess that Jesus is the Messiah of Christ. Well, possibly his brother Andrew will see. Uh, said this, but this was a revelation from the Father, and so Peter was assured of it. And beyond that, that he's the Son of God, that is God come in the flesh. He also later denied that he knew Jesus three times, even though he knew that Jesus said he would. I mean, Jesus says this to you. Aren't you really careful that you're not going to do this? But of course, Jesus said he would do it, so he had no choice. Apart from the Spirit of God, any of us are sometimes unable to control ourselves. Later in Antioch, Peter withdrew from eating with the Gentiles when Jews from Jerusalem arrived, and he was rebuked by Paul. Paul's an interesting case as an apostle. He was a genuine apostle in in the sense of the twelve, but uh, he's not one of the twelve chosen by Jesus during his earthly ministry. There are those disagreements people have about Matthias and Paul and who, who really is taking Judas's place. I don't know that we'll know that until we go around and read the foundation stones in the New Jerusalem, see whose names are there. <laughs> but we will know. Yeah, Paul, Paul, Paul one of the bricks in the Peter, along with John, was the first to arrive at the empty tomb after the testimony of the women. He went inside and looked around, yet did not believe until Jesus appeared to him. He was the first man to whom Jesus appeared in his resurrected body. And he'd already appeared to some of the women. Yeah. But he was the first man. That's something. <laughs> uh, in John 20, verses 1 through 10, we find the account of them coming to the tomb. And it says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. 
and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they laid him. Her assumption at this point was that, you know, they had moved, somebody had moved the body. She would have thought the Romans probably had removed it. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John was probably a bit younger than Peter. And he must have been fast. So he outran him. And he, stooping down and looking in, this is John, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, Peter, or I'm sorry, John, went in also, and he saw and believed. So John's saying he believed in the resurrection at this point, but he hadn't seen Jesus. For as yet they did not know the scripture that they, that he must rise again from the dead. Again, even though Jesus told them multiple times. You know, at one point they were talking among themselves and saying, what do you think rising from the dead means? <laughs> then the disciples went away again to their own homes. On the day of Pentecost, Peter was the main speaker. He delivered the first sermon after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he became the main spokesperson among the apostles in following situations in the book of Acts. He was clearly the leader among the apostles at that point in time. Peter opened the gospel to the Gentiles without the requirement of becoming Jews in Acts chapter 10. Jesus told Peter before the ascension how he would be martyred. And the, now the Bible doesn't include an account of Peter's death. And that's an indication of its early composition. Only James' death is recorded. The temple destruction in 70 AD is never mentioned by any of the writers. But tradition states that Peter was martyred in Rome about 64 to 66 AD. During the persecution under Emperor Nero, Peter was crucified upside down at his request since he did not feel he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Then there's James, one of the sons of Zebedee, uh, one of the three in the inner circle of the apostles. He was executed by Herod about 44 AD. That is recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, and then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's the account we have. We don't know much else personally about James. One insight we have is found when the Samaritans would not receive Jesus, we're told it was because his face was set like a flint to go to Jerusalem. That's in Luke chapter 9, verses 54 through 56. It says, when his disciples James and John saw this, that is the rejection of the Samaritans of Jesus, uh, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? We're ready. You know, bring it on. And he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. We see an indication as to why Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder or Sons of Commotion. Now, Mark is the only one who tells us of this nickname of James and John. 
John, the brother of James and a son of Zebedee, is the only one of the apostles generally thought to have died a natural death from old age. John, along with Peter, took the gospel to the Samaritans after Philip the deacon had preached there. Uh, John later in his life was the leader in the church of Ephesus and is said to have taken care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his home. That's tradition, but scripture tells us about that at the cross. John 19, verses 25 through 27, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. So John cared for Mary the rest of her life, no doubt. During Domitian's persecution in the mid-90s, John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and there he is credited with writing the last book of the New Testament. There are some who, who date that earlier, even before the destruction of the temple. So he writes the Revelation. Uh, there's an early Latin tradition that has him escaping unhurt after being cast into boiling oil at Rome. John, of course, gave us the fourth gospel with many discourses of Jesus that we do not get in the synoptics as well as in his letters. Uh, you know, the, those upper room discourses from John 14 through 17, that prayer, you know, that's, we only get that from the Apostle John. Some important early Christian writers claim to learn directly from John himself, including Polycarp of Smyrna, and Ignatius of Antioch. Then we come to Andrew. This is Simon Peter's brother. He was a disciple of John the Baptist, as several of these men were. He was the first of the twelve who followed Jesus early on. He was one of the first people to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and he introduced his brother Peter to Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, he says, One of the two who heard him speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. So he had heard John the Baptist pointing him out. He found Peter, his brother, and brought him. In John's account of the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, Andrew is the disciple who finds the boy with five loaves and two fish. Andrew, according to, to tradition, went to the land of the man-eaters in what is now the Soviet Union, a portion of Georgia, Scythia. Christians there claim him as the first to bring the gospel to their land. And I find these traditional accounts to be more reliable than some of the others because these are people who are Christians descended from the church that was founded, and they're saying, yeah, Andrew came here, and he founded this church. I mean, if you were going to make something up, would you pick Andrew and say, oh, Paul founded our church, or Peter, or hey, Jesus came here after his ascension, then you get into cults, you know, like Mormonism and so forth. So Andrew likely established that, a church in that region. doesn't mean it was limited to that, but that those accounts have come down to it. He also preached in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in Greece. Tradition claims Andrew was crucified in the Greek city of Patras around 60 A.D. 
and that like Peter, he didn't consider himself worthy of dying the same way as Jesus. Instead, he was bound to an X-shaped cross, which became a symbol known, it's still known today, as St. Andrew's Cross. According to the Acts of Andrew, that's an apocryphal text, it's not scripture. But according to that book, he hung there for three days, preaching the entire time. Being tied to a cross, it would take you longer to die than being nailed. So some of these traditional, legendary, or apocryphal accounts are not certain to be historical in the details, but the universal testimony of the early church was that these men died for their testimony of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Philip, the next one, is mentioned eight times in the gospels, but four of those are in the list of the apostles. He's noted for bringing Nathaniel to Jesus in John chapter 1. John 1, 43 through 45, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, so it was right there on the Sea of Galilee. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's also known for his statement in John 14 uh, when Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Thomas says, we don't know the way. And Philip speaks up in verse 8 of John 14 and says, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. There's another one of those just, you know, second and third spots in your kingdom will be fine. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, have I been so with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us? the Father. And then in John 6, with the feeding of the 5,000, uh, cha- Jesus challenges Philip. He said in verse 5, Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Mm. He said this to test him, for he himself knew, knew what he would do. And Philip said, Amazon could probably get it here pretty <laughs> quick. <laughs> Philip answers, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. And this is when Andrew speaks up and says, there's a boy here that has five barley loaves and two small fish. Philip's reported to have had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa and then in Asia Minor, uh, that is eastern Turkey, the area of Armenia, which was a genocide outside of a genocide by the Turkish uh, Empire. And in Turkey, Armenia, he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul, and in, re- in retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly put to death. Uh, but there are various accounts of how he died, including hanging. Then Bartholomew, he's one of the most obscure apostles. His name appears in the four list of Jesus' 12 main disciples, and he's never listed with any titles or descriptions. Aside from the list in Acts 1.13, Bartholomew is always listed alongside Philip. And so many believe Bartholomew is another name for Nathaniel. We saw that Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus in John chapter 1. Bartholomew or Nathaniel, you know, and we see these guys having different names at times, as we've discussed before. Jesus gave some, you know, Peter's the rock. I mean, Simon, he's the rock, rocky. So Nathaniel may have been a name that he was known by later, or a nickname that you know he was given. Well, 
According to tradition, again, Bartholomew had widespread missionary travels attributed to him to India with Thomas, then back to Armenia. This is another case. The Armenian church claims him as its founder. And so they'll have uh, tributes to Bartholomew and so forth. He also went to Ethiopia and southern Arabia. He reportedly preached in several countries, including India, where he translated the Gospel of Matthew for believers. It's said that he went on with Jude the Apostle to the Roman province of Armenia, where they gained many converts for Christ. They even convinced the Armenian king, Polemius, to turn to Christianity. There are various accounts of how he met his death as a martyr for the Gospel. Some say he was crucified in Georgia. At the end of his life, accounts say that impatient idolaters beat Bartholomew, then crucified him, while in another account, this is the better-known account, he was said to be uh, skinned alive, then beheaded. So he was you know, flayed alive is you know another term that, that was used. And you'll find iconography. How do you say that word? Icons. <laughs> Iconography. You'll, you'll see icons of him. Uh, he's actually, you know, where he's wearing his skin, but it's not on his body like our skin is. You know, it's attached with pins or something. Matthew, the tax collector, the writer of a gospel, is said to have ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Some believe that he and James the Lesser were brothers, since both are sons of Alphaeus, but we don't have that. Uh, identification in scripture anyway. Some of the reports say Matthew was stabbed to death. Others say he was killed with an axe in Ethiopia. Usually if he were killed with an axe, it would be by beheading. Then there's Thomas, who is also called Didymus, or twin. Uh, Thomas and Didymus both mean twin, so we don't even know that that was his name. He was called Thomas and Didymus. And when Jesus was going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, and the Jewish leaders have clearly been trying to kill him, in John eleven sixteen, Thomas says, Let us also go that we may die with him. So this was Thomas's commitment with Jesus. And it, you know, he wasn't thinking of a future kingdom or anything at this point. It's like Jesus is going to be arrested and and they've been trying to kill him. They're going to kill him. Let's go die with him. You know, so there's that human loyalty and impotence to go with him. Knowing the amount of faith he could have shown there. That was Judas. Um, Thomas, um, we know better as doubting Thomas. Jesus appeared to the ten apostles when Thomas was not with them. And he doubted their testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead and had appeared to them. He probably thought it was one of their practical jokes. He hadn't been there. He says, sure, if I fall for this, I'll be the laughing stock of these guys from now on. But it wasn't a joke. People don't die for a joke or a gag. In John chapter 20, we see this situation where... We see this situation where it tells us, John 20, 24, Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. He exaggerates. 
And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. So no way for him to get in naturally. He appears in their midst. And he says to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Go ahead, stick your finger in there if you want to. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believe. And at this point Thomas is like, I don't think I want to stick my finger in your hand. <laughs> Thomas answers and what does he say? My Lord and my God. Jesus saith to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. Those who believe in the resurrected Jesus apart from seeing him. Thomas was probably most active in the area east of Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India by 49 or 52 AD. Actually, in 1952, the Syrian church celebrated the 1900th anniversary of the coming of Thomas to Syria. I don't think there are too many Syrian people in the Syrian church left in Syria now. But in 1952, there were, and they celebrated the 1900th anniversary of, Peter, of Thomas coming. So you see, again, this is a local tradition that we can probably put a lot of stock in. Uh, and in Syria, it's where the ancient Marthoma Christians revere him as their founder. Marthoma means St. Thomas in their dialect or their language. Uh, K.P. Yohannan, many of you are familiar with him. He grew up in a Christian village in India where a church had been founded by Thomas, according to the local residents. They claim that Thomas died in India when pierced through with the spears of four soldiers, some martyred for the Lord. And they have the date. He, he died July 3rd, 72 AD in India, being pierced through. We come to James, the son of Alphaeus. He's one of the least, he's one of at least three Jameses referred to in the New Testament, and he's only mentioned in the four lists of the apostles. This James is reckoned to have ministered in Syria. The Jewish historian Josephus reported that he was stoned and then clubbed to death in Jerusalem. Some accounts say he was then thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. And I think that's a confusion with James, the Lord's brother, because that's the traditional story told about him. He was cast down from the temple and buried on the Mount of Olives. You'll see that there's some uh, attempt to confuse or to confuse the results between different Jameses and different Judes. Uh, and what they're doing is seeking to avoid the idea that Jesus had any brothers. Actual brothers. They were cousins or whatever. Thaddeus, also known as Judas in the other lists. Uh, they're likely the same person. Thaddeus means courageous or large-hearted. He was also known as Labaius, a man of heart. It is in Mark's list and one other, uh, Thaddeus, while Jude is listed in the same position in the other two lists. So this is likely the same guy, different name again. Uh, Judas was not a very popular name after the betrayal. So Thaddeus may have become his moniker at some point. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to call you Judas anymore. Amen. We'll call you courageous, large-hearted, man of heart. It may be another case of Jesus giving someone a new name, but we don't know if that's the case because that's not recorded for us. Thaddeus is said to have preached in Edessa, Mesopotamia, and Persia, and he died killed with a halberd. 
Anybody know what a halberd is? Spear. It's got a spear on it. I had to look it up. It's a it's like a spear type is it's got an axe head and then above that is a long point, you know, so you could kill either way with it. We have one other reference to uh, Judas, this Thaddeus, besides the list of the apostles, and that's John 14, 22, and 23, where it says Judas, not Iscariot. So to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot, he said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Some try to identify the apostles James and Jude with the brothers of Jesus by the same names, but they are just not paying a good attention to the scriptures. We're told in John 7, sometime after the twelve were appointed, quite a while after, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. So there's one theory we can discount. Uh, there was an attempt to uphold the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And so they would say, well, this James that's called the brother of the Lord and this Jude, they're really the same as these apostles that were appointed earlier. That's not the case. I think we've got different people here. His brothers did come to believe in him after the resurrection. Most notably, James the Greater, who became a leader in the Church of Jerusalem. He presided over the ecumenical council in Acts 15. He's the author of the letter of James and uh, Jude also, the author of the epistle of Jude. Neither refer to themselves as brothers of Jesus. But Paul calls James the brother of the Lord in Galatians 1.19 and Jude calls himself the brother of James in Jude uh, 1.1. Then we come to Simon called the Zealot. There was a group called the Zealots who were bent on revolution and they were looking for a Messiah to violently overthrow Rome. It would not be surprising if Jesus was attractive to such a one, but his zeal would be transferred to the gospel of Jesus and not physical or political revolution. Our translation refers to him as the Canaanite or the Canaanian, but that's a mistaken translation based on uh, the Greek word's similarity to the word Canaan. The Greek word actually means uh, zealot, someone with zeal. Jesus chose men of varied backgrounds to be his apostles, this guy's a, a revolutionary. Anybody from any background can become his follower if they believe. No category of persons is disqualified. The record indicates that Simon ministered in Egypt. Some possibility of him having traveled to Britain. There are stories in Britain of him being there. Mesopotamia and Persia, along with Judas. And the story is that he was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Some accounts have him being sawn in pieces. And then finally we come to Judas Iscariot. His designation distinguishing him from any other Jews. Judas's surname of Iscariot probably indicates he was a man from Kiriath. Judas Iscariot. He thus seems to have been the only Judean among the apostles. So everybody else would have been from the region of Galilee and he would have been from Judea. He achieved fame, but not in a good way. <laughs> I mean, fame can be good, fame can be bad. Right? Yeah. Uh, there's that saying that uh, what all all advertising good or how's that go? But for Jude, Judas, not. 
He achieved fame, but not in a good way. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver and betrayed him with a kiss. And today the name Judas is synonymous with being a traitor. He was also a thief, taking advantage of Jesus' apparent trust in him. In John 12, verses 2 through 6, it says, This is at the supper. They made him a supper. Well, this is at the supper in Lazarus and Martha and Mary's house. They made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. This is after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That's like the year's wages. And so Judas is standing up for the poor. Why haven't they just shot it? And, you know, John points out it was Judas that said that, but the other Gospels indicate the, the other apostles joined in. You know, They were influenced by Judas. He was a trustworthy guy. He's the account. He keeps the treasury. And, you know, he knows about donations and poor people. And, yeah, why didn't we do that? You know, the, you know these guys were with, with Judas for those three and a half years. And yet when it came to the Last Supper and Jesus said, one of you that's here is going to betray me. And they didn't say, is it Judas? We figured it was him. <laughs> they were saying, is it I? He said, not that he said this not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Well, Judas died by hanging, falling, and bursting open. We don't know how much time lapse there was between the hanging and the falling and the bursting. He could have repented and returned to Jesus for forgiveness, just as Peter did, but he did not. He died in unbelief. This is, he is the prime example of Jesus loving his enemies. In John chapter 6, verses 67 through 71, this is after the <coughs> multitudes had rejected Jesus and they went away. I'm getting a ding from somewhere. Said, Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Everybody's leaving. They're offended with him. And Simon Peter answers and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Ouch. And we don't get the response of a lot of the guys here, you know. Uh, what, you know a devil? You're saying, you know, you picked a devil? Mm-hmm. And you know, Jesus prayed all night, but he chose Judas, too. At the Father's direction. And it says he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. William MacDonald said there's a mystery connected with one chosen as an apostle turning out to be the betrayer of our Lord. One of the greatest heartaches in Christian service is to see one who was bright, earnest, and apparently devoted, later turning his back on the Savior and going back to the world which crucified him. And we've seen that with a number of people uh, who have been part of our fellowship at times. Beyond our list in Mark, two others were designated as apostles. There was Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas by the others in Acts 1. Tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew and to death by burning. Paul, of course, was an apostle on par with the twelve, but he did not believe until after the ascension and persecuted the church in the early years. 
So again, we'll just have to wait and see which 12 names are on those foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. We have a baker's dozen apostles, but only 12 stones. You know, maybe it'll be like Matthias slash Paul. <laughs> we got to share foundation stones? No. Uh, then Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, we'll finish with this. The multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. So he's been out here teaching by the seashore. He goes up, he prays, he comes back, he chooses these guys, and then the crowds come again. And they couldn't even have peace to eat something. They weren't able to, you know, it was going hungry because of all the people around says, but when his own people heard about this, and this would likely be his family members, and they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. He's, he's lost it. I think some translations say he's beside himself. And so they really thought Jesus was off balance, that he was you know, losing his reason, his ability. Uh, Morris, again, says, despite his wonderful works of healing and his strong Bible-centered preaching, his enemies accused him of being in league with Beelzebub, which we'll see in the next section. And his friends thought he had lost his mind. Paul was also later accused by the Roman governor Festus of being mad in Acts 26:24. If the greatest human preacher and even Christ himself were accused of such things by the world, we must expect the same if we are faithful to his teachings. And he, he promised us that. Right? So all those who seek to live godly shall suffer persecution. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. And then Matthew 10, 24 and 25, he tells us the disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Have you ever been accused of being demon-possessed? Or crazy? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, family members, close friends, you become a believer and they think, well, yeah. he's just off his mind. He just lost yeah. it, you know. Luke 6.40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And that's where we want to be. And then John 15.20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So you're either going to be accepted and have fellowship with a group of people, or they're going to be seeking to uh, persecute you and possibly kill you. That's the ultimate end of persecution is, you know, when they physically attack you and, and seek to kill you. So we want to be bold. We want to be faithful. We want to be wise. We want to be loving. And we want to carry his word to the world.